Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. On today's show, Tom and I have quite a number of topics to talk about, including News about an increase in GMO corn, more controversy over TTIP trade negotiations, Newburgh, New York's state of emergency, California Beekeepers Association vote against a domestic ban on imidacloprid, and new Japanese research into human health effects of neonicotinoid exposure. First, I'd like to welcome to the show my co-host, Tom Theobald. Hello, June. We're having some beautiful spring weather after about six days of cold and snow and rain, so things are looking good. Well, here on the East Coast, there's a lot of rain. We didn't really get too much during the month of April, but it'll be interesting to see just how quickly we jump into the 90s. You never know what you're going to get these days. I have been receiving emails from people that are starting to see more bees, and no signs of butterflies just yet, but a lot of honeybees, mason bees, of course carpenter bees, they're always they're always fun to see. Some people find them to be very annoying, but I just look at them as though they're a sign of spring. The first topic that I'd like to talk about is a discussion about farmers that have decided to move forward and plant more GMO corn. Now, I know that this has been a very big topic of discussion within the beekeeping community, Tom. Why do you think some of these farmers have made this decision? Yeah, I've given a lot of thought to that because we, we're we having uh, similar problems right here in Boulder County. And I think that the problem is that the discussion is very carefully steered away from the companion technology of these genetically engineered crops. We might be able to survive this genetic engineering. It might diminish the quality of the environment to some degree as far as the bees are concerned. But almost all of these genetically modified crops, and certainly corn, are seed treated with systemic pesticides. And what's being uh, carefully ignored is the horrendous environmental consequences of this seed treatment. Now, in fairness to the farmers, I think they are being grossly misinformed by the people they come in contact with. I said just a minute ago that I need to get on with things because I have bee work to do. They face the same problem. They're busy. They don't have time to spend on the Internet and look at all the competing science and come to some reason conclusion. They're influenced by the people they come in contact with on a regular basis. And those people are the chemical companies, the seed companies, the chemical salesmen, agronomists that work for the chemical companies, and 
they've been led to believe that what they're doing is beneficial. It certainly helps them and, and changes their workload somewhat. There was an article recently that featured uh, some comments by uh, Mr. Chip Bowling, who's the president of the National Corn Growers Association. And here's what he had to say, and this reflects what basically the farmers have been led to believe. He says, quote, it's better for the environment. We're using fewer chemicals overall. I make fewer trips across my fields, so I'm using less diesel. I'm also... It's also better for the soil because there's less tillage. The soil and all its nutrients stay put. They're led to believe that this is beneficial. There's no discussion with the farmers or with the general public about the terrible consequences to the environment from these systemic pesticides. We've talked about it repeatedly on this program, and what we're talking about, he's not using less chemicals. The chemical, the traditional chemicals have skyrocketed in use since the introduction of these genetically engineered crops. So that's simply not true. And uh, the, what we're putting into the environment by way of the neonicotinoids represents literally the toxic equivalent of hundreds of billions of pounds of DDT every year. These are long-lasting substances. They have long half-lives. And this is an, an unacceptable disaster. And, and we need to start holding these people to account. Well, the bottom line is, is that they're using more and more of these chemicals. And I understand completely that they don't have the time to pour over all the research, this and that. But there's so much research out there, Tom. It's kind of hard not to stumble across the stuff, whether it's it's on the Internet or even in the printed newspapers. It's everywhere. And then you're seeing it in the supermarket. There are so many products that are being labeled non-GMO. So at this point, there's only so many excuses that you can make. And then when you take a look at the research that's out there, especially the stuff that Dr. Jonathan Lundgren has done, you're looking at the disappearance of so many species because of this widespread poisoning. Well, it's interesting that you should uh, mention Jonathan Lundgren because he's the exception to that whole core of, of scientists who work at the EPA and the USDA. He's the exception. He's one of the few who's looking at these problems and one of the even fewer who has spoken out and What's happened to him? Well, yeah, he spoke up and he didn't wait until he retired to put out a book. He did it when he came across information that need to be disseminated and he stood up for what he believes in. That's why he's received so much support, especially with his new endeavor. He's doing what people sh what more people should do. Well, at jeopardy of uh, his livelihood, most of the EPA scientists, I think, are bright enough to understand what's going on here. It's not that they're ignorant of the consequences of these systemic pesticides, this technology, but they have children in college, they have house payments, and they've chosen to remain silent. We've had a couple who've stepped forward. Uh, we mentioned that last week. It's interesting how uh, retirement loosens their tongue. 
they're prepared to they're prepared to speak out a little more candidly after they've left their employment. And I understand the dilemma that these people face. They can't speak out or they lose their career. Actually, Jonathan Lundgren was mentioned in this article. He's quoted as saying, reductions in overall pesticide use may be illusory. They mention the fact that he's a USDA researcher who was suspended in connection with work on pesticides' effect on pollinators. Also, they quote Jay Feldman, who's been on the Organic View quite a number of years ago, actually. And he was quoted as saying, we're sort of seeing that the theory behind it hasn't really played out. So, once again, what information is being fed to the farmers, so to speak? And then you have an elected official. I know that this gal has come under fire by the Organic Consumers Association, Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. And she openly says, I support biotech. We need to support traditional production agriculture. Traditional agriculture, unfortunately, is commonly thought of as all the different advances in technology. But the irony is is that traditional agriculture should be what they refer to as conventional agriculture, which is organic farming. It, you know, as we're talking, I'm thinking of the comment by Mr. Bowling about uh, how the nutrients stay in the soil. And, and what he doesn't understand or chooses not to is that 95% of the seed treatment goes into the soil and the groundwater. It doesn't even go into the plant. And the consequences of that are virtually the sterilization of his soil. He's losing the earthworms. He's losing the soil microbes. He's losing all those things that make soil a living substance. And what he winds up with after a few years' use of these systemic pesticides is soil that provides no function other than to prop up the plant. It's a terrible technology that these farmers have been let into. But, Tom, I, I see this in so many different places outside of the agricultural community. Even in within the horticultural circles, people still think it's a good idea to use some of these chemicals because they're more concerned about the money that they're going to have to spend in order to replace certain plant specimens than the overall impact on the environment. And when you take a look at all the work that Dr. Lundgren has done, it's horrifying. Yes, I've had, mentioned- I've had this conversation with uh, our contemporary in Scotland, Graham White, and Graham has made the point that one of the things that's been accomplished over the past 20 or 30 years is they've they've reestablished what the standard is. It's now the standard is it's acceptable to use all of these chemicals, and and we have to argue against it. When you take a close look at many of these chemicals, and the effect is just an outrage. I can't remember who said the initial quote, but I remember you've said it time and time again in previous segments that when you repeat a lie over and over and over, inevitably people accept it as being true. Yes, we just accept that there is going to be 
a high level of chemistry in our lives, and we have to argue against it. This brings us into the next topic, which concerns the controversy over TTIP trade negotiations. There are a couple of articles that appeared recently, one in the BBC, one in RT.com, and it's in regards to the TTIP trade talks. Greenpeace has been very outspoken about what the risks are, and it's just interesting that this is still being pushed by the current administration. It's much more than it it appears to be. It's a a very sinister taking of, of the rights of sovereign nations. It's an attempt by the corporations to put themselves in the driver's seat. There's great concern about this. Whether or not that'll have any effect is yet to be seen, but there's a a similar trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement, and what it does is it puts the control in the hands of the corporations and and relieves the, the nations from the right, relieves them of the right to control their their own countries. Well, with this, this is pushing the GMO crops on countries that do not want it. American people don't want GMOs, but yet industry is so well situated that now they're forcing it onto other nations that have openly stated we don't want this stuff. Well, they have control they have control of the US EPA. That's quite clear. And what among other things, one of the things that this trade agreement does is it sets up the EPA as the standard, all right? And there's a basic difference in perspective between the EPA and much of the rest of the world. The U.S. believes that this should be the the control of these chemicals should be risk based. In other words, manage these hazardous substances once they're out in the environment, rather than avoid them. Much of the rest of the world believes that they should be avoided, and that gets back to what we were saying just a, a minute ago. They insinuate that that these chemicals should be a part of our lives and a part of our environment, and we should manage them rather than avoid them. Basically, well, that's all about money, Tom. Well, of course, it's money. money that it's money that drives this attitude. Of course, if there weren't money involved, who would care? You wouldn't, you wouldn't see any of these substances on the market if they weren't fantastic money makers. Well, it makes more sense as to why they will not ban them in the United States because then they can't sell them and push them on other on other countries. Right. That's what it always one the, boils one down to. Things, one of the things that the TTIP does, and and one of the major objections to it, is that it sets up the U.S. as the standard. And we have failed miserably in the protection of human health or the environment. And other countries recognize this. But this is an effort on the part of the corporations to grasp power over over many things. For example, if a, a U.S. company wanted to market some questionable pesticide in a European country and the country said no, then 
the corporation has the right to sue that country, and that is adjudicated in a in a business court, a business a corporate court, rather than in a legislature or a senate or anywhere else. It's this is very sinister stuff, and you know the bees are what we focus on, but the bees are just a symptom of much deeper problems that that we need to deal with, and. Efforts like the TTIP are one of those. We have a president who's gone over to the UK and pretty much strong-armed them to to get in line. It's not good. What's well, going to continue, especially if we have Hillary Clinton as the next president? She's very openly supported the GMO technology, and Bernie Sanders is completely against it. So there is hope, but well, you know, we'll I think happens. a lot of people uh, held great hope for Obama's presidency and he's proved to be a great disappointment. All of the things that he claimed he was going to do, he's failed to do, maybe not all, but he's become a mouthpiece for the corporations. Why do you think he was over in the UK recently touting the TTIP? He's just a mouthpiece for the corporations. We're getting a little off the subject of uh, the bees, and politics certainly is very volatile. But the basic problem is here, we have no government anymore. We're governed by the corporations. It doesn't matter who's in office. We're governed by these corporations, these massive, powerful corporations, and uh that's what needs to be changed if it's possible to change it. The corporations are in control, and, and we need to change that, I believe. Another topic that I think people need to think about concerns the city of Newburgh, which is Newburgh, New York, that is, which declared a state of emergency after a chemical was found in the drinking water. The chemical in question is... Plufuro-octane sulfonate, or PFOS, was found in Silver Stream and Washington Lake. What I find to be of relevance is the fact that this is the second major water crisis in the last few months. You had the Flint Water Michigan crisis, and now this. And people are completely oblivious to the impacts of neonicotinoids especially since they are mobile in groundwater. So they found this in the water, but Tom, what do you think that they're going to do when they find high enough levels of, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's imidacloprid, clothianidin, what have you, in drinking water all throughout the United States? Good question, and uh, and I think there's little doubt that they're going to find it. They're finding it. As much as they're trying to avoid finding it, they're finding it everywhere they look. They're finding it in the soil. They're finding it in the surface water. They're finding it in the groundwater, the runoff. And, uh, you know, it's only a matter of time before someone takes the initiative to to check the water systems 
for these compounds, and I don't think there's any doubt, but they're going to find them. Then there'll be an argument over whether or not they're hazardous or not. We'll set some standard that uh, may be meaningless, and we'll all be consuming these chemicals. I don't know, but I think they're going to find them in the ground, in the in the domestic water. Just listen to this part. Everywhere else. This is this is something that caught my attention. It says in this particular article, which you can find on NBCNewYork.com, it says because the city is using alternative water, residents are being asked to conserve water. Restrictions in places include no serving water at restaurants except upon request, no watering lawns, no washing cars, and no filling up swimming pools. And they include a full list of of restrictions. Once again, when you look at the sublethal effects of neonicotinoids, the fact that it is mobile in groundwater, it's interesting that when it comes to this particular chemical, they don't want people serving it in businesses such as restaurants, what have you, watering their lawns, washing their cars, filling up their swimming pools. But yet, when it comes to any of the chemicals that contain the neonicotinoid pesticides, you don't see any of these restrictions. I don't know what to and, think. I, 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 I think we're going to hear more from the uh, medical community about the consequences of these compounds. It's just beginning to emerge. They were sold to the public on the basis that they target uh, neural connections, synapses that insects have a lot of, but humans have relative, or mammals and humans have relatively few. But what we found is there is no safe dose. The effect on the synapses is cumulative and irreversible. And if the latency for insects is a matter of minutes, days, weeks, depending on the exposure, and they have a lot of these synapses. What's the latency for human beings? Is it going to take five years before we begin to see the consequences? Um, I think we're at that point. I think we're beginning to see the consequences, and, and the medical community is speaking out more and more every day. There was some information that was sent to us in regards to Japanese research into human health effects of neonicotinoid exposure. And granted, this research has been out for quite a while, but the bottom line is is that this is research that explores the impact on human health. Let me just read the abstract. It says, in Japan, there are currently seven neonicotinoid insecticides. The amount of domestic shipment of NNS was 407 tons in 2009. They're water-soluble systemic, and non-volatile and thermostable. This is something that at least the Japanese are focusing on. I don't know how much information is being uh, gathered at present on the human health impact studies, but I do know that there are scientists that are exploring this in more detail. I'm told that Japan uses these neonicotinoids at a higher level than most other countries, too, but that doesn't uh, excuse the problem. This particular study actually does address the inhalational exposure, which you and I talked about a few weeks ago, because we were wondering, okay, well, 
if there's so many plants that are treated and you see so many people that are suffering from allergies and all sorts of upper respiratory problems, is this as a result of exposure from neonicotinoids? Boy, that's a good question, and I think we'll hopefully see some answers to that in the near future. But I'm thinking of glyphosate, Roundup, used extensively, obviously. It's one of the things that we've talked about. But among other things, they have found glyphosate in the rainwater. Well... That means that these chemicals are getting out into the air. That's one of the things that they're finding in Japan. Yeah, but Tom, these chemicals are not used in one small place on the planet. They're ubiquitous. Right, yeah. So if they're ubiquitous and if they're in the rainwater, they've got to be in in the vapor in the atmosphere. I'm looking at the study, and, I, and, and I'm reading one passage that I think really jumps out at me. It says, once ingested, neonicotinoids are transported through intestinal mucosa, blood-brain barrier, and placenta. That means that once this gets into the human system, it can migrate to your brain, or in the case of a pregnancy, can migrate to the fetus. And a fetus is much more vulnerable to these chemical challenges than an adult would be in most cases. These are very, very damaging substances, and their consequences are being largely ignored. Once again, this is something that we've talked about so many times. It's the same scenario as with the process for putting up a traffic light. In order for a local municipality to put up a traffic light, there has to be a severe enough impact to human life in order for something to be done. And unfortunately, that's the case right here. The last topic for today is in regards to something that's going on with the California Beekeepers Association in regards to a domestic ban on imidacloprid. And I know, Tom, you've been quite outspoken on this topic. So what exactly is going on? You have to understand the position of the commercial beekeepers and almost all beekeepers. We're guests upon the land. We don't own the land on which our bees forage. So it's important that we have good relationships with landowners and farmers and ranchers. More so for the commercial operators because they have much larger operations. What's been done is the beekeepers have been set up as the bad guys, the fly in the ointment. Uh, I've used the uh, example of what, what would you say if I told you I expected you to go out on the interstate system and enforce the traffic laws? You would say I was crazy. Well, that's effectively what's been done with the beekeepers. They've been painted as the bad guys, the fly in the ointment, and they're struggling to maintain their businesses, avoid these chemicals and the damages that they cause, and yet not be at odds with the landowners. And the California beekeepers, I think, are taking that conservative approach. They don't want to speak out and support the, the it's not a ban on a imidacloprid. It would change 
to a controlled use substance, a little more carefully controlled. You'd have to have an applicator's license in order to to use it. Homeowners can get it if they want to go to a little effort, but it restricts the usage and, and raises it up to a little higher level. Realistically, it should be banned completely along with all the other neonicotinoids. It was a terrible mistake to put these out into the environment, and it's a reflection of the American view that we should put them out there and manage the risks. Well, we can't manage the risks. We're doing a very bad job of that. But I think that's the position of the California beekeepers. They've been put in the position of being the bad guys. They're trying to maintain good relations with the with the landowners, the farmers, the almond growers, and so they're reluctant to speak out. Well, they need to do something because pretty soon they're all going to be out of business. So then who are they going to talk to? Well, I think you're right, June, and I don't know what the answer is to that. It's a difficult question because I was talking with someone recently who said, well, you know, the, the beekeepers could solve this problem by just refusing to go to the almonds for one year. Well, that sounds good, but you have to remember that their business, most of them, their business income is based upon that almond pollination. They can't just not have any income for a year. So what are the beekeepers to do? You know, in other cases, we rely on police forces and government agencies and Strikes, like that. And with... what do the beekeepers have to rely on? They have an EPA that works against them, looks for excusatory science that does nothing, and they're in a very difficult position. Well, it, to a certain degree, it is no different than the folks that do go on strike. They don't have an income when they go on strike, and some of these strikes have gone on for very lengthy periods of time, and I understand well, what you're yeah. saying because the the almond pollination is the biggest crop that they pollinate, and it's also in the beginning of the year. But the bottom line is is that if they don't have any bees left, then what are they going to do? Well, As it is, they're barely hanging on. The dark side of that is they'll, they'll be out of business. We'll lose the American beekeeping industry. Well, we'll see what happens. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. As usual, to be continued. And thank you, June, and and thank the listeners for listening in and uh, participating in these discussions. These are very important issues, and, and we focus on the bees, but the bees are just a symptom. Thanks, Tom. And folks, if you have any questions for either of us, please send them to questions at theorganicview.com. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.